0: I confess before I even start that uh, this particular message I've I've found a bit difficult to put together. It's been sitting sort of in skeleton form on my table over my quiet time for probably more than a year now. Um, And i just sort of go back to it and look at it and try and think of ways to kind of express the ideas. Um, So I hope that we can... can, Get, get across the, the salient themes in a way that's not, not too confusing. And I've tried to include some pictures and some sort of allegories that hopefully will will get the message across. And it's to do with these uh, particular verses in, in Colossians that um, Olivia read for us, Colossians chapter 2. Um, and I asked her to read it from a particular version, uh, just because it contains these particular words. You would have perhaps come across them. They're in verse 8 and again in verse 20. And um, apart from one time in Galatians chapter 4, this is the only time you hear this expression in the New in the New Testament, this idea of the basic principles of the world. And so the idea behind this message is to try and teach what is Paul talking about when he talks about the basic principles of the world and what does that actually mean for us. Right, I'm going to start by... Three short little stories, allegories if you like, <clears throat> may seem completely disconnected, but I'm hoping to show to you that they're actually actually quite connected um, in, in a way. This, if you haven't seen it before, is the Burj Khalif, the world's current tallest building. It's in um, Dubai. If you ever happen to go through Dubai, it was completed some years ago. It's about 800 metres tall, which is nearly uh, twice as tall 800 metres, that's right, nearly a kilometre in the air. Uh, 800 metres, nearly twice as tall as the um, uh, World Trade Centre was uh, before it came down. So it gives you some idea of how big. Um, And of course, it took over from, uh, well, if you've been to Malaysia, been to Kuala Lumpur, been to Petronas Towers, it's just gobsmacking how tall those towers are. And you can see that they were quickly overtaken by the Shanghai World Centre and then Taipei 101. And then they built this enormous thing in um, Mecca called the uh, Abraj Al Bait, um, yeah. which got this. It looks like Big Ben, but like six times the size. It's just unbelievably colossal. And then Shanghai decided that they had to do another one, um, and then of course that got topped by the Burj Caliph. But as you may guess, of course. Um, the Burj Khalifa will not be uh, the tallest building for much longer because they're building in Jeddah in Saudi Arabia, the Jeddah Tower, which is going to be over a kilometre in the air. <coughs> it's stopped for a while and uh, imagine the sort of foundations they have to build on a tower that tall. And it goes, you can go and look this up, the, 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 the towers they have planned are truly colossal. And the most colossal of all uh, that I saw plans for is a pyramid that's meant to be 10 kilometres tall. Um, and will house 30 million people. <coughs> so just get your head around that. The, what's that? What's it called? Oh, it's that, they're actually calling it the Tower of Babel. Yes, it's going to, uh, uh, who knows whether this is fiction. But anyway, um, there it is. That's the Jeddah Tower. Uh, that's the, the fiction. That was meant to be a helipad, by the way, until someone told the architects that you can't land a helicopter that high in the air because it's too dangerous, the wind speeds are too too high. So it's now going to be a viewing platform. And good luck to you if you're willing to go out there. Okay, second story. Um, You may or may not know this lady. This is um, Elizabeth Elliot and Elizabeth uh, Elliot's husband, uh, Jim Elliot and four other missionaries, as you may remember, the story in South America were murdered by a tribe of uh, Indians. This is in Eastern Ecuador. Interestingly, that particular tribe later on, some uh, anthropologists went and stayed with that tribe and they calculated that 80 percent of adults, so people who survived the rigours of childhood, get to adult, 80 percent died by homicide, 80 percent. Just get your mind around that. 80 percent of the people in this room expecting to die by homicide. That was the situation in their particular tribe. So the story goes that one day she's out on patrol after her husband was killed. Later on, she and her daughter amazingly were able to go back into that tribe and to live with them. And many were converted to Christ. And this is a picture of her with some of those women. One day she's out on patrol in the jungles and they're walking down a particular pathway and there's a there's a track that veers off to the right. And she says, oh, where does does that one go? And they go, oh, no, we don't go down that track that goes to such and such a tribe. And they're killers. And she goes, well, you're killers. (laughs) And and they go, yeah, but they're worse, much worse. So the story goes. Put that one in your head. I'll come back to that particular picture a bit later on. This last particular story, uh, I'm ashamed to say, concerns myself. And there was a time in my life I perhaps can excuse myself for the fact that I was only six years old, but when I was attending Mitchell Park Primary School, myself and my friend uh, went through a stage where we quite literally started every day at school by tormenting a particular young boy who was in our class. And we would find this guy and um, start before class started, pull his hair and his ears until he cried every day. That was the way we started our our school. school in primary school and I know nothing about what happened to that particular young man and I shouldn't I can't even smile I shouldn't just smile to tell a story that's so horrid um I can't imagine what it would be like if my own son came back saying that that was happening <laughs> every day in school but there it is that was uh, what I used to do when I was in junior primary now what do those three stories have to do with one another absolutely nothing you might think Um, But I hope to show that, in fact, they're actually quite strongly linked. Uh, For those of you that read The Australian, there's a very interesting uh, author in The Australian by the name of Henry Ergus. And this was his article from a couple of days ago. He called uh, 2023 the year of living angrily, basically. And um, it's quite an interesting article. I think everyone can um, agree that the world is a very, very polarised place at the moment, not just between cultures. We see rival cultures, rival powers jostling for uh, influence in the world. But we also even within our own culture, this Australian culture, it just feels so polarised and so angry and so many sort of loud, uh, angry opinions at the moment. And that has caused me to uh, think about this question of what is it that we actually have in common? So this message really today is is based upon the idea of what, what do we have in common. I think that probably um, has been brought more into sharp focus for us having lived in PNG, because when you live cross-culturally, as Cosmos and Marie and the kids are doing now and we did in PNG, it's so different. I mean, for us, living in PNG was just so different. It does really make you ask the question, well, what, what do I have in common with these people when I go out in the deep forest of Enga province, and I meet some of these men and women, I, I'm forced to ask, what do I have in common with these people? Is there anything I have actually truly in common? I'm sure if you sat down with Marie and Cosmos and asked them what their experience has been like, I'm like this place is so different to what they've come from, so different. And yet, is there actually anything in common we share with them and their family or any other family? Um, Afghani people or um, um, Taiwanese or what other culture is here in this particular town at this time? Is there anything we actually have in common? And I think one of the reasons for the fragmentation we're seeing in the world, this polarisation, is that in a secular world, the world is becoming increasingly secular. We're finding it hard to hang on to the idea of actually having anything in common. What's the reason you can say? Yes, we're all united. We're all one family, but are we what what particular reason would you give for saying I have anything in common with a Chinese person or someone from Africa? What things do I have in common if there is no God? Um, Does the world really have a reason? And I think uh, I might just turn that off for a second. This is where the biblical story is so important. The biblical story really does give us reason to believe that we have things in common. The most important things are all things that we share in common with one another. And I'm not going to go through all of those things today that you could make a whole series of sermons out of this, things that the Bible shows us that we really do have in common with one another, regardless of your gender, your educational background, whether you're from the aristocracy or whether you're in the slums really do have in common with one another. But this particular passage that we read today focuses in on one of these areas that we have in, really do have in common with one another. Um, so, uh, Olivia read for us the whole of chapter two, and I just want to focus in again on those two verses. If you've got your Bible open in front of you, let me read for you again these words uh, from verse eight. Paul says. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy I'm reading from the New King James uh, through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men according to the basic principles of the world and not according to Christ. And again in verse 20, it says, therefore, if you died with Christ from these basic principles of the world, why is it as though you were still living in the world do you subject yourself to certain regulations? And he goes on. So these are the two uh, verses that I'm focusing in here. If we could have that on again. So, skip through that. Okay, so um, now, depending on the translation you, you're reading, if you're reading from the King James, which I know some of you are, it won't say the basic principles of the world, it will say something like the rudiments of the world, which I had to look that word up, to be honest. Uh, But it actually means, surprise, surprise, basic principles, first principles. Um, If you're reading the NIV, it'll say uh, the essential elemental forces of this world. And if you're reading something like the message or it will say something like the spiritual powers of this world. All right, what's the idea? What's Paul talking about here? What's he what's he trying to suggest? He's trying to suggest that there is something very foundational in our experience as human beings. No matter whether you're from Nigeria, you're from an Anglo-Saxon culture, you're from Papua New Guinea, you're Chinese, it doesn't matter where you are on this planet. There's there's something that's foundational to all of us. And it's like a kind of a a force. and it's something that's there, present in each one of us. Now, I tried to think of the best possible analogy to explain this to you, and I came up with this one. If I was to get my rubber rubber dinghy and uh, paddle out through the Sydney heads, <coughs> lie back, shut my eyes, have a bit of a kip for, say, two days, <laughs> when I woke up, I would find myself well and truly on the way to Tasmania. And it wouldn't matter how fast I paddle to try and get back to Sydney in the heads. There's no, no, no turning around because, as you may know, off the eastern coast of Australia, there's a very strong eastern seaboard current that flows down the eastern seaboard from north to south, which is probably one of the reasons they have the Sydney to Hobart yacht race and not the Hobart to Sydney yacht race. Um, there it is. So this is kind of the idea that Paul has explained. It's like there, there's a current in our experience as human beings, something that drags us along, moves us towards certain patterns of behaviours. And you can push back against it very hard, but it just seems to keep bringing out certain kinds of behaviours within each one of us. And we saw this in PNG. It was really quite striking that even though people's thought patterns in some ways were very, very different to our own. And yet these same impulses I could recognise in myself. And we're going to give some examples of that. Let's um, just by way of sort of highlighting this point, let me read to you from what Paul says in Romans chapter seven, which kind of says the same thing, but in a different way. This is Romans chapter seven. He says this in verse 15. He says, What I'm doing, I don't understand. What I want to do, I don't practice. But the thing I hate doing, that's what I do. And then again, in verse 21, he says, I find there's like a law that evil is present within me, the one who wants to do good, because I delight in God's law according to my inward self. But I see that there's (coughs) another law, another current, if you like, another law that's there in my body, and it's warring against the law of my mind, and it's bringing me into captivity to this law of sin, which is there in my body. Oh, what a wretched man that I am. Who's going to deliver me from this body of death? Well, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So, then with my mind, I do serve the law of God, but with the flesh, I serve the law of sin. It's the same idea. All right. Well, what is it then? Um, We're going to, this is the sort of outline to this. What is it? How does this basic principles of the world actually show itself in our experience? What are the consequences of it? And then how does the gospel of Christ actually change us? What is this basic force, basic principles of the world? Well, I struggled to find the words for this, but here it goes. I would say it's the desire that all human beings have, no matter where you find them, to be recognised in some way to be admired, to be valued and even to be worshipped a little bit and to elevate ourselves so that we can be more admired and more valued and more worshipped. And that tendency that all people have shows itself in all kinds of different behaviours, some of which we're going to discuss. All right, how does it show itself? This message is kind of in two parts, and I would break this down into how does the basic principle show itself in our general life? How we live with one another normally on the street or at work or in the family? And the second part is, how does it show itself in religion? Because if you read that chapter two, he's actually talking about religious life. And he's saying there's these basic principles that makes for very <coughs> unhealthy religion, bad religion. And we're going to talk about that next week, how the basic principles shows itself in bad religion. But today we're going to talk about it in general. Life. All right, here's some examples. Um, everyone, of course, knows what this is, and this is just a modern manifestation, if you like, a more crass, a more Gross manifestation of something that we all know. Everyone, you know, knows the sense of wanting to have people look at us. Um, and the thing that amazes me about this—I never cease to be amazed by this—is how famous people don't get. It doesn't get less. Have you ever noticed that it doesn't get less? I read a story the other day about an NBA basketballer. This guy's getting paid gazillions, like these basketballers do. Everyone, you know, people wear his T-shirts. And they said that as soon as he'd finished his game and he'd done his interview, you know, someone sticks a microphone in his face, first thing he would do was go to the locker room, open up, get his phone to see how many likes were, he was getting, you know, from that interview he'd just done, like two minutes ago. Now, that was just a powerful lesson in the fact that when people get famous, this need to be worshipped and adored and admired doesn't get any less for them. If anything, it seems to get worse. It's like it's feeding a beast that just seems to grow and grow and grow. When I was looking for some images of this, it was amazing. The number of celebrities, you know, pictures like that, taking selfies of them. I mean, wouldn't they get sick of it? You would think, but no, it doesn't seem to work <laughs> that way. Now, this is the ancient equivalent of this. <clears throat> if you know anything about Greek mythology, uh, this guy, his name is Narcissus. That Word might sound a little bit familiar. So it should. And the story goes, there's a few different versions of this story. One of them says that he was kind of cursed by a, a woman for whatever reason. And the curse was that he fell in love with his reflection in the, in the, the pond. And he was so in love with it that people, he, he starved himself to death. Eventually he just dies of starvation and, because he won't go off to you know, do the necess- necessaries of staying alive. He's just in love with his own reflection. And of course, from that particular word, we get the idea of narcissistic personalities, which just means someone that's totally self-absorbed. Just it seems to the world seems to revolve around them. And we we call that a personality disorder, but it's not really a personality disorder. It's just an extreme version of something that we all kind of recognise a little bit in a way, I think. What's another um, manifestation of this? Well. I, I don't know about you, but I, you know, have you ever sat back and watched two people sort of having a conversation? I say sort of, because one person seems to be talking about one particular subject, something that they've been doing, and the other person's <coughs> having, responding with something that seems totally disconnected, unconnected, and they're talking about the things that they were doing. And neither is listening to the other one at all. They're just having a chance to sort of say what they want the world to hear. As that gets worse, of course, people just interrupt or talk over one another um, because it's my words and um, that are important, not the other person's words. Now, I know I'm not free of this. In my brain, it kind of works like, yes, I'll listen to someone, but while I'm listening, I'm kind of thinking about the next thing I'm going to say as soon as I finish. <laughs> do you do that? <laughs> you don't have to say I it. Anyway, it's just these are just little manifestations of our tendency to think about ourselves um, rather than the other person. Well, next one is um, putting other people down. Um, I grew up with Irish jokes. Did you? Uh, It didn't really strike me until I was older. Why the Irish? Why not the Norwegians or? You know, something like that it just seems very odd. And of course, it wasn't until I got older and realised that, you know, the English and the Irish have a bit of a thingy going on that goes back hundreds of years. And because my line came through the English, it's not surprising that I inherited the jokes that put down the Irish. Um, and I didn't realise that, you know, Irish particularly, is their IQ lower than the average? It seems, you know, but it's just something that's kind of been inherited through our prejudices that come down through generations and generations. And when you live in a tribal society, uh, I can tell you that that's all there in Spain, but just much more well defined and very strong. I don't know what it's like in Africa, but certainly in PNG, the the tribal delineations, the way people talk about different tribes is is very, very strong. we do it in all sorts of ways, I'm sure. I don't know. My, my mother will probably tell me in a different generation, probably men had their jokes about women. Now we have man flu and dad jokes and you know other sorts of ways of putting down different groups. We talk about bogans. It's a horrible word. I cringe every time I hear the word bogans. It's really just a way of putting down people that you sort of you know, think are less educated than you, really. Uh, we have all sorts of different ways of doing it, don't we? racial ones as well. Another way it manifests, which you might think is a little bit odd, but hang with me on this one, is the idea of group identities. This is very powerful. Uh, We don't have a... Because we're a nation of immigrants, we don't have a tribal mindset, truly. Um, But PNG, it's honestly, it's so strong. you will find this hard to understand, but in Papua New Guinea, if, let's say, Dave is from my tribe here and someone belts in one, literally, I will say, that person just hit me. He didn't hit me, he hit my brother. But what they will say is, he hit me. That's how personal it is to them. If you hit my brother, my team, You just hit me and it's almost like they feel it. It's so strong, that tribal sort of thinking, that tribal mindset. Your identity is absolutely bound up in the clan, the people that you've come from. We have all sorts of different ways of doing that. Perhaps, though, in Australia, because we're so loose, we tend to do it this way, which is sort of we have different sort of tribes. Now, you say, well, what's wrong with that? Well, there's nothing particularly wrong with it when it gets wrong, when it gets sinful, is when my pride and my sense of well-being is bound up in what happens to the tribe. So, if, you know, I'm a very fair weather football supporter, to be honest, but some aren't, you know. And if your tribe loses, it just wrecks your day, makes you miserable, grumpy, because somehow, even though you weren't even on the field, had nothing to do with you, It's impacted you emotionally, your sense of pride, your sense of well-being has gone down the toilet because your guys lost. And it goes in both ways. Obviously, when they win, you feel great. When they don't, you get very ugly. Uh, And there's all sorts of different manifestations of this group identity. I identify with my team and what happens to my team affects my sense of personal pride. Um, and of course, um, the worst form of this is, you know, what happens on the international stage. What happens when one country that has been strong is starting to get challenged by another country, and you're no longer the big boy on the block? The countless wars you can read in—you look at the First World War, which is really, you know kings that are jostling for power. It's really these basic principles of the world, but being played out with weapons and the consequences are really devastating. It doesn't matter where you go on the map, whether it's Central Africa or Greece and the Turks or anywhere, you'll find this kind of dynamic where people are jostling for (coughs) power and control. Okay. Well, what are the consequences? They're the manifestations of it. What are the kind of consequences that happen as a result of these basic principles uh, in operation? Well, the first one is that um, you just become insensitive, insensitive to other people, completely insensitive. When you're focusing on yourself, the other person, their needs, what's going on in their mind? becomes, can't even register. This is obviously one of the first things you learn when you get married, isn't it? I'm speaking as the youngster amongst some of the older couples, is that all of a sudden you realise that the other person doesn't think like you. Why not? You know, because my thoughts are of course the correct ones and the healthy ones, and do did you get with the programme? You know, it's, you realise that actually you need to take time to try and understand where the other person is coming from. now. I think this is really important for Christians. I want to say this is a little bit controversial, but you make of it what you will. I think Christians often in this culture, we're known by our positions on certain things. Anti-abortion, prostitution should be illegal, whatever you want to add to that. And I would say, I think, although it's not wrong to have a position, Christians should be more known by their ability to understand the argument from the other side. Okay, Now, let me give you an example of that. Really, what I'm saying here is that Christians should be empathic. We should be the ones that listen the best. We should be the ones who are trying hard to understand the other person. What is that person saying? Why do they believe that? Where are they coming from? Uh, We had an interesting thing. Corinne and I were up in um, a Christian medical conference in Darwin. Uh, when was that? June, July. And um, surprise, surprise, there was probably a couple of hundred doctors or maybe a bit less uh, from around Australian Christian doctors in Darwin at a particular function centre. And then we got this notification that there was going to be a protest out the front of the hotel against the function that we were doing. Because the Christian medical um, doctors, thing had put out a position statement saying that they thought that the trans ideology was quite unhealthy. And lo and behold, on that particular morning, we had half a dozen people making a big noise. And they wrote to the chief registration body uh, in Australia saying these doctors, all of them should be deregistered. They wrote an official letter, which really scared the doctors that were there, I have to say. Um, anyway, um, and I remember of feeling like they're making a big noise, placards, these guys are all, you know, um, phobic and whatever. Anyway, I made up my mind, I'm going to go out there and have a conversation with them um, because I wanted to know, what is it? What is it that you're thinking? It's one thing to say, oh, we're against those people, but why are they thinking that way? Do you understand what's going on in their mind? Let me give you another example. I'm, I'm pro-life. Um, gee, that's controversial in a church. <laughs> but I think if I was forced to debate the alternative position, which is abortion should be legalised in all its forms, I could do a pretty good job. In fact, I think I could argue very passionately for that position. I don't agree with it, but I could argue it very well, because anyone who's ever seen a woman die of a backyard abortion, which I have, uh, will be affected by that. It's a very persuasive argument. OK, now, I don't think it's as persuasive as the other arguments, but I understand it and I could argue it very well. Similarly, with prostitution. Should prostitution be legal or illegal? Well, can you argue, you know, could you understand both sides of that equation? I'm not saying you should agree with all positions, but can you understand why certain people? Can you understand why some people were strongly in favour of the voice or the alternative? What about vaccination? I'm not here to tell you about vaccination, but if you were anti-vaccine, could you understand the pro-vaccine case? And if you were pro-vaccine, could you understand why some people really didn't want it? Very often, the people I spoke to were just so locked in to a particular position that this is the right position. You've got no idea what the arguments are on the other side of the equation. Now, that's the insensitivity that I'm talking about. Christians shouldn't be like that. We should understand. We still have our beliefs, but we should really understand why people believe what they do, because we should be listening. All right, here's another of the consequences. So the first one was just um, insensitivity. Another one is self-deception. This is the story Elizabeth Elliot. This idea that 80% of us are going to die by homicide, but the other guys, no, they're really killers. Now, that's an extreme example. I mean, What? Talking, I, you, know, you guys should all be locked up. And you're calling them killers. But that's the human story. How often do we do that? We point the finger at the other person. Oh, gee, they're really bad. You know, we don't see what's going on in our own. So we just, you know, the story that came out that Jesse read that's so powerful. We just don't see. Remember the story of the tax collector and the Pharisee? That's the message in that story is that one person can see their heart. The other person just can't see. They just can't see their self-perception. And this is in verse 18 um, and Olivia read for us of Colossians 2. You can look at it. It says, Paul uses these words. He says, people are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. Those words puffed up, Paul uses a lot. It's this idea of like a balloon. It's really big on the outside, but inside it's just full of nothing. It's just full of nothing. It's a, it's a fake. It's an illusion. And that's how he says we can become. We just become puffed up, not really understanding who we actually are. A third one, uh, which honestly, this was ran home to me personally in PNG, is just the issue of jealousy. I, when people used to talk about jealousy when I was a kid, I was like, yeah, whatever. And I didn't, perhaps I wasn't really suffering from it that much. But when we went to PNG, oh man, honestly, I came away thinking that jealousy is the most powerful emotion that anyone can experience because the results were so devastating. One tribe will see something that another tribe is doing, something happens to them, perhaps they get money or vehicles or some job. Rather than be able to be happy for them and to be grateful that that progress is going on, oh, it just burned like a fire within them. But they're getting this and we're not. So it becomes a destructive thing. Now, you will think this is absolutely crazy, but I'll tell you, it's true. Many times in our province and in our particular area, people would literally burn down health centres, hospitals, schools, burn them to the ground. And their thinking was that, well, these guys are getting access to these things and we're not. So let's burn it all down and then everyone will be equal together. Now, that seems unimaginable, but that's jealousy kind of the destructive power of jealousy which comes from just this inward think basic principles of the world making people envious. When you see someone that gets, you know, Australians are not always good at that, that's the sort of tall poppy type thinking, isn't it really? someone goes on and succeeds in some way, there's always a little bit of, you know, a bit of grumpiness about that, that we tend to harbour as a culture. That's the basic principles of the world. Next one is kind of bickering, bickering, <coughs> nitpicking. When I was in church as a young guy, I have to say our church was not good in this department, um, because when we would look at another church, Rather than go, oh, you know, think of all of the things we had in common, the good things that God is doing in this place and be, yeah, that, that's going on. But they're really not great on the issue of second you know, coming theology or some, you know, there will always be something you could find about another church. that just wasn't quite, quite like us. You know? And it was always like that, you know, it's, it's just, you know, it's just Finding fault with people, continuously. As a way of just making everyone know that we're the ones that have got it right. You know? And what that leads to is just separation. It doesn't make people come together, it just separates us from one another, doesn't it? When we behave in that way, it makes people bitter in the end. Having the last word in every argument. I have to make sure I close this and you understand that we finish, I was right at the end of it. <laughs> just, just for your information. I you know, don't want you to go away under any misapprehensions that I was actually right in this dispute. That's the same sort of thing. Gossip. Gossip, we're sort of cranking up the notches here. When gossip comes out of the shadows, it just becomes harassment, doesn't it really? Bullying, like me and my mate in primary school. It's just a way of really aggressively hurting people. Uh, which we can do through words maliciously, or we can come out in the open and really try and damage people. What on earth was in my head? Why would you pull someone's ears or pull their hair to make them cry? Somehow, some sick sense of me feeling good about making another human being weep. I mean, that's twisted, isn't it, really? And yet it's not that foreign to the behaviour of children. I'm sure parents have seen their kids do, maybe not as awful as I was, but something along those lines. There's something hardwired, isn't there, in human beings that we kind of can get up on seeing other people suffer. And lastly, of course, it breaks out into really overt hostility. And I have to say, we saw a lot of that this year um, you know, through the Voice campaign. Um, we saw it through COVID as well. This idea that if you're on my team and you agree with me, then you're good. If you think about if you're part of the other team, there's something wrong with you. There really is something wrong with you. I had a friend, a good friend who's a doctor in, in PNG. He's um, he's from the US. It's very strong in the US. And he, he says quite openly that there are some places you go to in the US churches you'll go into. And if you say that you vote for the Democrats, they know that you can't be a Christian and vote for the Democrats. That really, that thinking is really there. Now, that's sad, isn't it, really? I mean, it's, you know, that you can't accept that someone might have a different political opinion to you and still be a Christian. That's the kind of thinking that we're talking about here. You're on my team. You're OK. If you're not on my team, there's, there's a problem. And we get this. There's no middle ground because you can't understand the other person. You're not trying to understand the other person. You're just interested in you and your opinions, and there's no crossover in between those things. These are the consequences of the basic principles of the world. Well, last of all, what does the Gospel of Christ do to change all of this? I um, want you to turn to John chapter 3. I just love this story. I read it over and over. I find it quite striking. Um, This is not the famous part of John 3 that you all know. This is after that. This is the story of John the Baptist. When I tell this story in PNG, oh boy, people's eyes light up because it really resonates with them. Um, because here's this guy who is the prophet. People thought he was Elijah. They really thought he was the re-embodiment of Elijah. He is the the main man. And he's an original guy. He's not a, he's not someone who's just copycat. He's created this idea of baptism, which is a new thing. You go down in the water, you get done, you come up. You know, it's this is big. He's a trend-setting guy. And he's got disciples, lots of them. And there comes a certain point in his ministry when Jesus comes along and his disciples come to him and go, look, there's this other guy. He's doing our thing. He's baptising. You know, something wrong here. This is our territory. He's doing it. And worse still, everyone is starting to go to him. That's what they say. You can kind of hear it, kind of the sort of, my group is being challenged by another group and I'm feeling uncomfortable because my sense of pride and well-being is bound up in this and it's starting to look shaky. And how John replies is just so profound. This is in verse... um, Uh, Verse 26, the disciples say they came to John. They said to him, Rabbi, the guy who was with you beyond the Jordan to whom you testified, look, he's baptizing and everyone is going to him. And John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. Verse 28, you know, you bear me witness that I said. I'm not the Christ. I've been sent before him. And down in verse 30, he says, he's the one who must increase and I must decrease. Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, he says, you know, all of those things that people used to praise me for, I was a Pharisee, I was first in my class, I was a Hebrew, I was a type of engineer. All of those things that people used to praise me and lift me up the ladder for, all of those things I now count as nothing. I count them as loss compared to knowing Christ and being found in Him. And then in Colossians chapter three, this three, there's this extraordinary verse. It is extraordinary verse where he says this. He says he describes how we can put on the new man who's being renewed as we learn to know our Creator and to be made like Him. And then he says this, he says, there there's no Jew. Just think about it for a second, a Pharisee saying no such thing as Jew. There is no Jew. There is no Gentile. There is no barbarian. There's no Scythian. There's no slave. There's no free. (coughs) Christ is all and in all. Now, those verses are a description of the power of God to change the basic principles of the world, to turn the rubber dinghy around, to actually move it in a direction that we can't move it ourselves. Making the self recede, bringing us together. Imagine Paul saying Jews and Gentiles coming together, black skin and white skin coming together. All of these old categories that we used to use Democrat, Republican, male, female, whatever you like, all of those things just dissolve because Christ becomes the central thing and we focus on him. As John says, I'm not the Christ. Everything I had was given to me from heaven. He's the one that we worship. The truth is, we are human beings that have a lot in common. Um, and we've talked about one of those things today. The, the deepest, the most fundamental parts of our existence, and this was definitely how I came to feel after all those years in PMG: was the differences between myself and them were extraordinary, and I never felt like I was one of them. And yet, deep down, I could see that the really profound things about us were exactly the same, exactly the same. And so in that sense, I had a connection with them. I could preach the gospel. I could stand up and share the scriptures and knowing that it was just the same truth that they needed to hear as what I had needed to hear, even though so much else was different about us. Everyone struggles with the basic principles, the elemental forces and the currents that are at work in this world and in each of our lives. And the consequences of those currents are not pleasant. But we are all here today in hope. That though we struggle with the battle every day, by God's grace, we can say with Paul that thanks be to God who gives us the victory. We can be different. That's the hope that we have, I'm not the same person. I I know Karina knows better than all of you that I'm a fairly selfish person by nature, but I'm not the same selfish person I was when we first got married. And I don't fool people's ears anymore, thankfully. And, you know, little by little, I know that God has changed me. And that's the hope I have, that. By God's power, I can be a different person to the one I was yesterday. He can make me to um, focus more on him and the things of self can can receive. And I pray that it will be the same for each of you.